0: For Christ to be your savior, Christ cannot be sin in theory. For Christ to be your savior, Christ cannot be this amalgamation of all the world's sin. For Christ to be your savior, he has to be your sin. If Christ is not made to be your sin, then your sin has not been paid for, and you still owe for it. Christ can't die as the representative of your sin. He has to be made to be your sin. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So if we're paying attention... What we just recognized, what we just saw was that Jesus just compared himself to a snake. You see it? He makes a one-to-one correlation. As Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The serpent was put on a pole. The pole lifted up the serpent. Christ is put on a cross. The cross lifts up Christ. Jesus just made a correlation. He just compared himself to a snake. If these weren't God's words, these would be blasphemous. Because we recognize, we talked about this last night, we recognize the imagery of serpents and snakes because it is such a consistent imagery in the pages of Scripture. Beginning all the way back at the beginning of Genesis as the serpent comes and the serpent comes to the woman with the intention of deceiving the woman into falling into sin. And that imagery continues all through the Old Testament. Last night we talked about Goliath and how we should have in our minds Goliath as this man, who, this giant man who stands up wearing armor that's fashioned to look like a snake. He is a giant, snake like man. The ancient god of the Philistines, Dagon, was a snake creature. And then the prophets pick up on this theme Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them will, will compare Egypt and Babylon to the snake. And then we come to the New Testament and we hear Jesus calling people a brood of vipers. We hear John the Baptizer calling people a brood of vipers. And the imagery continues all the way to the final book of our Bible in which we read of the dragon, the dragon which is a winged snake. So all the way through our scriptures, this imagery of a snake is the imagery that means the curse of sin, the fallenness of man, the enemy of man. And Jesus just compared himself to a snake. If he hadn't done it, it would be blasphemous for us to do it. So what is the meaning of this? The meaning is this, the remedy is both like the curse and different from the curse. The remedy is both like the curse and different from the curse. You know, God could have told Moses to have the people look at anything. He could have told Moses, have the people lift up a sheep on a pole. Have them look at the sheep. Lift up a ram. Have them look at the ram. He could have said, have everybody look at that camel over there. He could have said, have the people look at that cloud or look at that mountain. God could have designated anything, but He didn't. He designated the very thing that had bitten them. And remember what the serpents were. The serpents were God's wrath... Upon their sin. So the thing that they're to look upon is the very thing that was the wrath of God or the curse of God upon their sin. Fashion the snake. So it has to be both like the curse, but different from the curse as well. Because notice God didn't say to Moses, get one of the dead serpents and put it on a pole and lift it up. One of those serpents that bites somebody, take one of those and tie it to a pole and lift it up. It couldn't be a real serpent. It couldn't be a live serpent. It couldn't be a dead serpent. It had to be a what? Fashioned serpent. It had to be a made serpent. So now let's connect the dots. The remedy had to be like the curse, but also unlike the curse like the son of man who would Romans 8 chapter Romans 8 verse 3 come in the likeness of sinful man or Galatians 3 and verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us or 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 he became sin he was made to be sin so the remedy has to be like the curse, but it also has to be different from the curse because it has to be made to be the curse. The remedy can't be sin. The remedy can't be a sinful savior. The remedy has to be a savior that's made to be sin, or to use another word, fashioned to be sin. Do you see it? Do you see it? The remedy for the curse has to be like the curse but also different from the curse. Just as the serpent had to be like the wrath of God, the curse, but also different from the curse. So that the Son of Man, when he's lifted up on the cross, is made to be sin, but he wasn't lifted up as a sinner. He was lifted up as the perfect sinless son of God who was fashioned and made to be sin. You see, Nicodemus' struggle, I think his struggle really centers upon seeing himself as that sinner in need of that remedy, in need of that redemption. Because for Jesus to be Nicodemus' is Savior. This is the same as true for you. For Christ to be your Savior, Christ cannot be sin in theory. For Christ to be your Savior, Christ cannot be this amalgamation of all the world's sin. For Christ to be your Savior, He has to be your sin. If Christ is not made to be your sin, then your sin has not been paid for. And you still owe for it. Christ can't die as the representative of your sin. He has to be made to be your sin. In order for your sin to be atoned for, your sin had to be on that cross. You cannot see Christ in this theoretical way that He's, in theory, He's He's dying as my substitute. You must see him as Nicodemus had to see him as his own sin. The Israelites had no trouble doing that. They had no trouble relating that serpent to the serpents that bit them to the grumbling that they had just done against God. They had no trouble doing that because it was physical, physical, physical. Nicodemus needs to be led along that path because his connections are spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. And so Jesus says, let me show you this physical analogy so that you can see the spiritual truth behind it. You must see, Nicodemus, that you are just like those Israelites who opened their mouth against God. You are just like those Israelites who lied about God, who gave false testimony about God's care for them. You are just like them, Nicodemus, and the Son of Man must be lifted up for your sin or your sin is not atoned for. Just as the Son of Man, just as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the last thing to see is this, and then we'll end all this with with this final thing. The last thing to see is back now to Numbers chapter 21. Can you imagine with me Numbers chapter 21? The the scenario, there's there's this grumbling and complaining. The snakes have come out, they've bitten people, a lot of people have died, other people are sick. And there's this, this serpent that Moses fashions, and he puts it on this pole, and then he spreads the word, everyone has been bitten, look at this snake, and you will be healed. Can you imagine that there would have been some skepticism? Is that reasonable to assume that some would have been skeptical? And I would imagine that the level of skepticism probably was directly related to how sick they were. The ones who maybe had just gotten bitten and their leg was really, oh, it's re- that really smarts. that's really smart. That really hurts. Well, look at this pole. Look at this serpent on the pole. Okay, whatever. But then the one who was on their deathbed, maybe the skepticism had faded away by that point. In the same way, in the same way God uses affliction in our life, right? But the larger point is, certainly there must have been skepticism for some to say, you've got to be kidding me. It can't be like that. It can't be that easy. This is a snake bite, man. What's looking at a pole going to do to a snake bite? Kind of like Naaman. You remember Naaman? The, The leper who comes to Elisha or he's going to come to Elisha and then he's sent away before he even gets there to say, go wash in the Jordan seven times. You remember his response? No, I wasted my time. It can't be that easy. This is leprosy. I'm not dirty. This is leprosy. In a similar way, I would imagine that some would have responded the same way. That's too easy. That's too easy. It's got to be more to it than that. I've got to do something more than that. I can't just look at a pole. I've got to do something more than that. Well, the word that's used to to this translated look here does mean more than just glance at. There's a word in the Hebrew that means to looked like if you if you uh looked at someone crossing the street or something like that or you looked at uh, this thing over here or whatever but then the word that's used here it's a word that really carries with it the connotation of, of not just looking but looking with trust looking with regard looking with a an intense attentiveness let me give you a couple of examples of where else the word is used Genesis 13 the same word shows up The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes and, here it is, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, and all this will be yours. So you see the connotation there? God is saying, look, and all this will be given to you. So Abraham was being asked to look with belief. He was asked to to look with a trust. Shows up again in Genesis 15. God brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. So you see the same idea there. Look to the stars, and if you can count them, these are your descendants. And so Abraham had to look at the stars, not just in a way of just looking up there to say, oh, those are nice stars. He had to look with trust. He had to look with belief. He had to look with, with regard. That's the word that's used here. Look to the serpent, not just to see it, Look to it with regard for it. Look for it with attentiveness to it. Look to it even with belief and trust. Jesus uses a synonym for that when he says that everyone who looks and believes will receive eternal life. But then we come along, just like Naaman, and say it just can't. It just simply can't be that easy. There has to be something that we have to do to that. There's got to be something that we've got to add to it. But there's not. In fact, there can't be. Because by adding to it, you negate it. By adding to it, you strip it. By adding to it, you blaspheme it. Because the command is simply, look, look. A lot of people have connected together this passage with the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. We all, I'm sure you're familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century, an amazing man that God used in amazing ways. Well, his conversion is an interesting story. He tells of his conversion in his autobiography. Charles Spurgeon was converted at age 15. And when he was converted, Spurgeon was, well, he was Nicodemus. Because at age 15, Spurgeon was already learned in the scriptures. By age 15, Spurgeon had already read more theology than most all of us will read in a lifetime. He was already highly conversant in theology and the scriptures. But just like Nicodemus, he hadn't received conversion He believed everything. He didn't doubt the scriptures, just like Nicodemus doesn't doubt the scriptures. But nevertheless, he had not yet received that new birth. And so the story of his new birth is an interesting story. Let me read it to us. He writes this, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair even now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. So he goes out, it's a Sunday morning, this heavy snowstorm, and he can't make it to his normal church. He says, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not even come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach in his stead. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. His text was this, Isaiah 45 and verse 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There I was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in this text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, Now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anybody can look, a child can look, but this is what the text says. And then it says, look unto me. Aye, he said in broad Essex, many a year looking to yourselves. No looking there, you'll find no comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up this way from his text. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to the heavens. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look to me, look to me. And when he had got about that length, and managed to spin out about 10 minutes. He was at the end of his tether and then he looked straight at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And then he said, Young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit. However, it was a good blow and well struck He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting his hands and shouting as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Christ, look to Christ. And then and there, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that very moment, I saw the sun. I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. I looked and I looked till I thought I would look my eyes out. He was just like Nicodemus. He needed the Spirit of God to come to him and show him his need, his sin, and he had to look and see and see his sin on that cross. Now the final thing to say is simply this. If all we're told to do is look, and if, as we are told, this looking is the difference between eternity with Christ and eternity in torment, how intense would our looks be if we really remind ourselves? That, that look to him is all the difference. Would we try to stare a hole into that serpent on the pole? Or would we glance once a week on Sunday morning, glance over his way, give him a courteous nod, and look away? What would our look really be like? Now, brothers and sisters, the intensity of your look to Christ doesn't save you. Christ saves you. But it is a reality that if he has saved you, your look to that cross will be more than just a passing glance. You will look as though your eternity depends on it because of does.